The reading is Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 and 9 to 20, and can be found on page 1233 in the Red Bible. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John to testify to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And if you could have Revelation 1 open, that would be great. Um, probably for the whole series, but certainly for today, either one of the Bibles or on your phone, that would be great. As Sarah said, we're starting our new series in Revelation. Maybe that delights some of you. Maybe that terrifies some of you. Revelation is a book that can throw up a lot of rabbit holes that it can be tempting to go down, and we're going to try not to do that. But as Sarah said, the book of Revelation, well, really, it's about revealing things to us. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. It's where we get our word apocalypse from. Apocalyptic literature, which revelation is, was a particular genre with roots in places like the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And Daniel will come up again and again in Revelation. When we think of the word apocalypse, we often think of world-ending events, don't we? Those great 
big budget Hollywood films where a meteor is coming to smash into the world and they have to blow it up in space, all that kind of thing. And there is an element of that kind of world, not of meteors hitting the world, of Hollywood films, but of, of that sort of world ending um, going on in the genre. But the word revelation itself really just means that idea of revealing something. We might think of, of drawing back the curtain to see something that is hidden, to see something as it truly is with new eyes. And the most famous example of that in all cinematic history is probably the moment in The Wizard of Oz when they finally see the wizard for who he really is. Why don't we have a little watch of that clip? Not so fast! Not so fast! I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, but I want to go home now. You've had plenty of time already. Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you'll keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh, the great Oz has spoken. Oh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I yes. don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug! Yeah. Uh, yes, it's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Oh. He's a humbug. The revealing we've seen here is a stripping back of power and authority. This great and mighty wizard of Oz is really just a man. A humbug. And in some ways, actually, that's what the book of Revelation seeks to do. It seeks to show us that the authorities and the powers in the world that we might fear, that we might be intimidated by, well, when we pull back the curtain and see them with God's eyes, in light of his power and authority, we see that they're nothing but a man pulling levers and making loud noises happen. We see things very differently. And if you're a Christian here today, well, this passage is meant to give you comfort. In the first chapter of the book, the vision will pull back the curtain on two areas of the world in particular. Two areas it's important for us as Christians to see with God's eyes, as it were. The first is our circumstances, the circumstances we face, and the second is God himself. And if you aren't a Christian here today, well, it's helpful for you as well to see how it is that John reveals God's eyes on the world. But firstly then, let's look at circumstances, the circumstances that the people face. It would probably help us at this point if we knew who was writing the letter who is it who's had this vision from, John, from God? I did that in the first service as well, as you believe. In verse 1, we see it's John. But who is this John? 
Well, John doesn't specify who he is, interestingly. He only calls himself a servant of Jesus in verse 1, and then their brother and companion in their suffering in verse 9. The first recorded readers that we know of thought that this John was the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. But from very early on, there was quite a lot of debate. In some ways, it doesn't really necessarily matter who this John is. Whichever John he is, it's important to see here that he isn't claiming any special privileges. He's not saying, you must listen to me because I'm a very important person. Instead, he's saying, I'm like you. I'm a fellow servant of Jesus with you. I'm suffering along with you. And verse 9 shows us that what the Christians of the time were going through was the same sort of suffering as John was going through. In verse 9, he says he's on the island of Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It sounds like, and early church history suggests, that he's been sent there as a punishment for telling people about Jesus, a sort of exile. Let's stick him on a small island where he can't really do any damage. And so John says, I'm suffering too, like you are. When we suffer, for whatever reason we might suffer, it, it can leave us afraid, can't it? For the early church, this was a time of suffering, a time of fear. Are there things that you might be afraid of? Are there powers and authorities out there that maybe threaten to cause you suffering that you're anxious about or scared of? Maybe it's something as simple as a person at work. Maybe it's the threat of war looming on the horizon still. Or maybe it's even the thought of death. Are there things that you're afraid of? Well, whilst John suffers on Patmos, God draws back the curtain for him and shows him things the way God sees them to help him see that those things he might be afraid of are a bit like the Wizard of Oz in comparison to him. John then writes down this thing that's been revealed to him and sends it to the seven churches. The chain goes something like, from the Father to Jesus, from Jesus to the angel, from the angel to John, and then from John to all his readers and hearers, including us. John is identifying himself with us down at the bottom end of that chain, if that makes sense, with the hearers, the sufferers. He is seeing and hearing, and we are reading what he has seen and heard. We'll see more of those seven churches that are referenced here next week with Tim. But before we get there, John is showing something of how God sees those seven churches, of how God sees all his suffering people. It says that these seven churches are like seven golden lampstands in verse 12, precious objects that shine light into the darkness of the world. And in verse 13, we see that it says, one like a son of man was in among them. Well, we know from the Gospels that 
Jesus calls himself the Son of Man again and again. And so it is Jesus who is in the midst of them. And this is something that the vision really wants to stress. If we've put our trust in Jesus, he loves us. He's with us. And we don't truly understand our circumstances, whatever we're going through, whatever we face, John says, unless we realize that Jesus is in the midst of it with us. But in order to really understand what difference that actually makes to our fears, God doesn't just reveal the truth of our circumstances. He reveals something of the truth of himself as well. You see, we can only really understand how much difference Jesus' presence makes with us when we really understand some of the truth of him himself. So let's see what our passage then tells us about God. Firstly, our passage shows us the triune nature of God. That just means that God is Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Revelation in general, and, and actually this chapter in particular, when we see it at all verses, provides us with some of the strongest biblical material for the Trinity. And largely, this is why I said, please have a, a version of Revelation chapter 1 open for you to see, because we are going to read some of those verses that we didn't actually, well, we're not going to read them. We're going to see some of those verses that we didn't actually have read out. Because in order to see this more fully, we need to see verses 4 to 6. And in summary, we see there that grace and peace are offered to all Christians in the name of all parts of the Trinity. Father, Spirit, and Son are all together offering grace and peace. As well as that, look at what the people say of Jesus in verse 6. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Well, this is the sort of exalted language reserved only for God. If Jesus is just a man, how can people talk about him in this way? But there's more. Because we can compare verse 8 and verse 17. In verse 8, the Lord God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like he's saying, I'm the A to Z. Or, I'm the first and the last. And then what does Jesus say in verse 17? He says, I am the first and the last. In fact, if we look at Isaiah 44, we see there that the Lord God says, I am the first and I am the last. And apart from me, there is no God. Put this together and what do we get? The Father and Son are both God. And not two different gods. They're both the same, aren't they? They're both the first and the last. And Isaiah says of the Father, apart from me, there is no God. So they are two, but they are one. With the Holy Spirit, they are three in one. Three persons, one God. But as well as Trinity, what does Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, what does that actually mean? Well, 
It means eternal, forever. It means that there was nothing before God, and it means that there can be nothing after him. He is over all time, over it, in control of it. And so that means that all the things that we fear, whatever they are, no no matter how formidable they might seem, well, we know that they will all pass away in comparison to him. To quote Kipling, cities and thrones and powers stand in time's eye almost as long as flowers which daily die. If we replace times with God there, we get a picture of what's going on here in Revelation. Cities and thrones and powers stand in God's eye almost as long as flowers which daily die. But God, God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. There is nothing in the whole of creation not encompassed by him. And he is the one whose authority and sovereignty and rule are far beyond any of those things and will never end. And in verses 13 to 16, this sense of God's sovereignty and authority over the whole of creation is encapsulated in in John's powerful, overwhelming vision of Jesus. And as we look at this vision of Jesus, we need to remember that, that John says here things were like this. Not that what he writes down here is exactly what he sees in this picture here. We've kind of got an, an artist's depiction from the 19th century. But not that John exactly saw this, but that this is the best John can do with the language that we have, with the things in the world that we have to try and put down on a page what is happening here. What John sees is beyond the boundaries of language. The awesomeness of God is beyond the boundaries of language. And in this vision, Jesus, the Son of God, is dressed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This is the clothing of someone in authority, like a high priest or a king. His hair is described as being pure white. As both a symbol of age and distinction in those days, but also um, a shadow of the image of the Ancient of Days from Daniel chapter 7. His eyes are like blazing fire, a common image in the ancient world of someone who, who sees beyond the surface things, who sees beyond down into our soul, down into our hearts. His bronze feet glowing in the furnace are strong, stable, and powerful. It's the opposite of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. That statue representing worldly kingdoms, the cities and thrones and powers of this world, the authorities of this world, whose feet are made of clay, who is smashed into pieces. Unlike the powers of the world, Jesus will never fall. For all those who trust in him, he is their lasting foundation. But then we get to his voice. Have you ever heard the noise of the sea in the middle of a great storm or stood in front of a large waterfall? Well, that's the nearest thing John can think of to compare the sort of the volume coming from Jesus's mouth. The two-edged sword shows us that it's not just the volume that's important here but the content of Jesus' words as well. These words are sharp. 
they pierce our hearts. Forget sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. These are meant to pierce us, to cut us to the quick. And they cut both ways. You see, it's double-edged. The sword is two-edged. Jesus speaks both salvation and judgment. But it's a wonder when we get to the end of this vision, it's a wonder that John could see any of it. Because he brings his description of Jesus to a close by saying that his face shone like the sun in all of its brilliance. In the Old Testament, Moses' face turned radiant after speaking with God on Mount Sinai. If that was reflected glory, here is the real thing, the source. Jesus' face shining with the divine beauty, ineffably sublime in all of its brilliance like the sun. And so when you take all this together, the vision is meant to fill you with a kind of overwhelming, awe-inspiring sense of who Jesus is. His eternity, his glory, his authority, his power, and his divinity, they burst out of him here in a kind of riotous explosion that causes complete sensory overload. Nothing can compare to this vision. Nothing compares to Jesus. John's response in verse 17, it's the only one available to anyone seeing that. It says, I fell at his feet as though dead. To the Christians of the day when this was written, power and authority were being used against them to marginalize them, to bully them, to kick them out of their homes and communities, to kick them out of their jobs, their professions, all because of their belief in Jesus. But our vision shows us none of those powers, none of those authorities being used against them compare to the power and authority of Jesus. John's revelation from God, it doesn't get rid of the things we fear. It doesn't mean the things don't still do those things they were doing, that they can't still threaten us or hurt us. John's vision doesn't fix the things we might be afraid of. But God gave it to John and ultimately to us to lift our eyes, to clear our vision, to help us to see just a little bit as he sees. He draws back the curtain to show us that in comparison to Jesus, all of these powers and authorities are like the Wizard of Oz, humbug. And ultimately, of course, the greatest fear of all is death. It's the last fear to be faced, the last and darkest door we'll ever walk through. And Jesus, in all this righteous explosion of color, this pomp and splendor, tells John that he is the one who holds the keys of death. He is the one who holds the keys of death, and everyone who trusts in him, he will open the door and give life forever. He says, I am the first and the last, the living one, the one who was there before, the thing that we fear ever existed, and the one who will be there long after it is swallowed up and gone. If we put our trust in him, he puts his right hand on us to give us courage, 
to persevere and says, I'm with you. Don't be afraid.